Welcome to the Growing With Purpose podcast. I'm Paul Spiegelman, and we're going behind the scenes with very special leaders, learning about what shaped them into who they are in business and in life. quick disclaimer before you get started. You might hear a little noise in the background of this episode. Ari was calling in from a Zingerman's kitchen, so you might also get a little hungry. Happy listening. My guest today is Ari Weinsweig. Ari is the CEO and co-founder of Zingerman's Community of Businesses, which includes Zingerman's Deli, a creamery, a bakehouse, a training company, and several other businesses. Ari has been recognized as one of the who's who of food and beverage in America, has authored many books on business and leadership. An article about Ari and Zingerman's in Inc. Magazine was the inspiration for Bo Burlingham's book, Small Giants, Companies That Choose to Be Great Instead of Big. Welcome, Ari. Good to be with you. It's good to talk to you. I haven't talked to you in a while, and uh, I'm really curious how you guys are managing. We're well into, I don't know, month 10 of this pandemic. Uh, how are things going uh, with uh, all the businesses? And I'm sure you're managing things with uh, great, great talent, utilizing the talent of your team. So how are you guys doing? Best pandemic ever, Paul. No, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, uh, let's see, what can I say? I've taken to describing it as uh, it's a little bit like you were in a really bad car accident. The guy next to you was killed. The one in the back seat's a paraplegic, and they tell you you only broke your legs. Mm. So out of context, it would be horrific. In context, it's a huge relief. So we're, you know, we're hanging in there. I guess one of the upsides of the vision that we wrote to create the community of businesses means that we have a lot more diversity. Uh, within the organization, which in nature, the healthiest ecosystems are the most diverse and also the most resilient. And uh, so we have everything from mail order, which is having by far our busiest year ever uh, out there to our food tours, which is at zero uh, and our event spaces, which are close to zero. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and Zing Train, which went from doing, you know, whatever, five great years in a row to knocked down to nothing in a week and everything in between. So then we have the restaurants, the deli, the roadhouse, and Miss Kim, our little Korean restaurant. We held course at about 35% with carryout only for whatever that was, April, May, middle of June, and then gradually worked our way back up to probably two-thirds of normal sales, whatever normal is. And, uh, and then now, of course, we're coming back down because we've got colder weather, much higher case rates and uh, as of a week ago uh, dining rooms got closed in Michigan again so now we're back to you know 35 40 percent probably we'll see what the numbers look like but uh, we're you know we're hanging in there I mean I, I guess I would say what you I'm sure have experienced in your conversations and from your own past experiences this is both of our first pandemic but it's certainly not our first crisis uh, so it's it's different, but not completely different from 9/11 and from 2009. And and I I uh, was working on an essay the other day about culture, and there's a well used or much quoted uh, line from Kurt Lewin, 
this uh, 20th century psychologist had said, if you really want to understand an organization, try to change it. And I, I realized that you could also invert the statement. If you really want to understand an organization, watch what happens to it under a time of great forced change, because unhealthy cultures will come apart quickly and healthy ones are still stressed, but they will hold together. So I guess that's what I, I would say for us. We're holding together. Yeah, well, and uh, you set such a great foundation to hold it together during these times. And a couple of years ago, I, I jumped in the restaurant business in a very small way out in California. So uh, we're experiencing the same thing out there with the ups and downs. Again, they just closed indoor dining again. But yeah. uh, I happened to facilitate a peer group of restaurant owners out there. Mm-hmm. And uh, at the, especially at the beginning, we were talking weekly and uh, I just was was very uh, impressed by how resilient everybody was and uh, uh, how caring and gracious they were with their teams and transparent with their teams. And, and you know what, we're, we're, we're getting through this, you know, like yeah. you said, it's, a, it's not easy. It's tough on everybody, but there's yeah. reasons to be grateful for what we have and, uh, and we're all going to get through this. So uh, based on, what you've built there, I have no doubt that you guys are are handling with great humility and grace. You know, what's interesting in, of course, Small Giants community was kind of born with a group of us eating uh, corned beef sandwiches uh, there at Zingerman's <laughs> Deli, I think about, you know, 11 years ago. And uh, and so I have great affinity for uh, your restaurants and in all of the businesses that you've built, but you created this really unique business model, this community of businesses mm-hmm. uh, that came out of the original deli. And that had a lot to do with the culture you built. Talk for a minute just about this business model and why that's worked for you guys. Absolutely. Um, I was trying to think of where to Rebecca Solnit, whose uh, books I really love, I'm paraphrasing, but said something like trying to decide where a story begins is like dipping a cup in the ocean. So I never really know where to, you can start the story from any number of perspectives, but uh, I'm going to go to 1982. So Paul and I opened the deli on March 15th, Uh, not you, but my partner, Paul Saginaw, although we could say it was you, the an article came out in a high school newspaper the other day that said my girlfriend and I opened the deli in 1982 because <laughs> the young woman who wrote it helped my girlfriend on her farm. But That's <laughs> it's funny. completely not true. But anyway, sounded good in the article. But anyway, uh, so 1982, March 15th, we opened up uh, 1,300 square feet, two employees plus me and Paul. I didn't realize it at the time, but it was the... I, I, studied Russian history was actually the anniversary of the day in 1917 that the Tsar abdicated. And I didn't know until two months ago or three months ago, but it was uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg's birthday also. But but regardless, that's when we opened. We knew nothing about visioning, which is the core of small giants, and I'm sure we'll get to it in some form or another. Like everybody who does anything meaningful, we had a vision. And there's an essay in part one of the book that Bo Burlingham actually wrote the forward for that's called 12 Natural Laws of Business. And the first one on the list is that all healthy organizations and, and are successful. I don't necessarily mean the ones make the most money, but all that are basically living the life of their choosing uh, as individuals or, or as groups have a vision. And Paul and I had one. I mean, we didn't call it that and we didn't write it out the way we do now. But in our heads, we, we were pretty clear. We wanted something really special not a copy of something from New York or Chicago or Detroit, but something that was unique to Ann Arbor. 
Uh, we wanted great food, great service, great place for people to work. We wanted to, to do it in a really down-to-earth setting, and we wanted to really only have one from the beginning. I mean, that was, it's still my big push. I wrote a pamphlet uh, that came out, I think, three years ago next month uh, called The Art of Business, which is my ever-evolving belief that business and life are like art and that, uh, or music or poetry or sculpture, whatever you want to pick, and that the more we would look at what we're creating in, in our work, in our lives, in our relationships, uh, in our daily interactions with anybody is, is art that's going to be hopefully appreciated and left for people long after we've left the planet. So I, I always liked to, and you went, I went to a restaurant and there was only this one cool, amazing place. And when you start to have seven of them, it just was, I don't mean it's evil, but it's not that interesting. And energetically, there's a drastic difference between the original and the copy. So we knew from the beginning that was where we wanted to go. Uh, for context, I should say that we were pretty much judged that we were highly likely to fail. Uh, Ann Arbor had, had 10, 12 delis closed in the previous decade. There was general wisdom that that was a bad neighborhood. Uh, there's still no parking to this day. And uh, although you and I can remember, many people can't, but not everybody used to have a, a map in their pocket at all times. And there's a lot of one-way streets that were confusing and difficult to uh, traverse and make it make your way to the deli. But anyway, six, seven years later, we were considered geniuses. Uh, this pattern has been repeated with almost everything mm -hmm. we've done, including uh, where I'll go with the story next, which is so we, we opened up uh, 1,300 square feet. We added on 700 square feet, I think, in 86. And then we renovated that house next door, which is probably where we were sitting when we did the conversation about small giants. And uh, that was 91. So that was nine years in, so another couple of years down the road. So summer of 1993, about 10, 1030 in the morning, uh, summer day, Paul sits me down on this little bench out front of the deli and he kind of looks at me and he goes, okay, in 10 years, what are we doing? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> no, seriously, in 10 years, what do we do? I'm like, Paul, I don't, I don't know. It's a long way down the road, man. And he's like, no, this is this is important. You know, like we, we only want to have one store. People are copying us. Uh, they're opening on campus. They're taking our part of our market. We're turning down these offers from other cities. Is this crazy? You know, like, what are we what are we doing, man? I'm like, look, I got work to do. I got to get the sandwich line ready for lunch. And he's like, no, this is our work. So in hindsight, I could say safely that he probably couldn't sleep for like four months worrying about it. Uh, with the benefit of hindsight and a lot of understanding, I could say now that he had a pretty much an intuitive understanding that we had essentially fulfilled that original vision, which... I did not have at the time, but I, it's, it's not like we were satisfied, to be clear. I mean, we've always been about what's now commonly called continuous improvement, but that's just the way we always have thought. But I would say now clearly there's a very big difference between improving what you have and going after an inspiring long-term vision of greatness. So anyway, we started a year-long conversation, argument, lots of disagreement, lots of coming back to the table trying to figure out the answer to his question. and. That's really the first time that we learned about visioning or what we now call visioning. We learned it from Stash Kazmierski, who I'm sure you must have met somewhere along the line. He passed away, yeah. sadly, three and a half years ago. But he had learned this process, and it's a longer story, but from Ron Lippitt at University of Michigan uh, years before. And that's the first time that we actually wrote a vision. And it was called Zingerman's 2009. It was six pages long. It's not exactly how we would do it now, but pretty close. And that's where we described this community of businesses. Uh, it was a way to grow, but stay true to having only this one unique deli. 
so that we would do it by opening other Zingerman's businesses. Uh, keep them all here in the Ann Arbor area. I have a very strong, actually stronger now even than then, uh, belief in doing business in the place where you are uh, in the same way that farming, uh, when it's done old school, you can always do it in a way that's true to the ecosystem in which you're doing it, not just plop down 5,000 acres of corn somewhere. And that we would, uh, we wanted managing partners in each business because my experience, our experience as as organizations grew and there were more and more managers reporting to managers and it's not like all owners are good and managers are always bad but in general there's just more energy present when the owner has a passion for what they're doing and they're present on site and so we wanted a partner who would be there or partners that would be there that really had a deep commitment to learning the craft of that business and then that we would operate synergistically which means that each piece of the organization would be contributing positively back to the others. So once again, everybody hated that vision too, just for what it's worth. Uh, the business school people thought we were insane because we were basically turning down this chance to franchise. The lawyers couldn't believe we were going to actually have real partners. They, were, they had a hundred ways you could have fake partners to pretend it was a partnership. Uh, the accounting people couldn't believe we were going to have all these multiple tax returns. And then Bo Burlingham uh, wrote that article in Inc. Magazine that you referenced. And then we were geniuses again. And now everybody loves it because it's local and entrepreneurial and Yada, yada, yada. So that's where it came from. And to make it clear, the, these owner partners are employees, people who in general, you may have, uh, maybe you brought some in from the outside, but these uh, these business partners are not a, at last count, there were 16, maybe there's more now of yeah. uh, these businesses uh, came from passionate employees who expressed, uh, you know, not only talent, but interest in, in uh, kind of owning and managing those new businesses. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, some came from the outside, some from the, a lot from the inside. I mean, it's and it's not like somebody just has an idea and then we open the business. I mean, it's a long conversation that starts with them drafting a vision and the process gets clearer and longer as we grow and screw things <laughs> up and try to recover from them. But but the, they're not just longtime employees that we award like, oh, we're doing this. You're you're going to be the partner. It's really got to come from them because we found repeatedly it's much harder to find somebody who wants to be a partner in something we started than it is to find somebody who wants to be a partner in something they want to start. Mm -hmm. So, and, and then I, I guess I could add, I, I just wrote a piece a few weeks ago in the e-news that I do that I, I guess you'll put the link to sign up or to get the, the archive into the show notes, but about consensus. So one of the, a couple interesting things that we did when we rolled out that vision that turned out, I, I think to be huge pieces of our organizational story uh, that are rarely talked about, so I'm going to talk about it here, uh, is that we agreed from the beginning that we would use consensus to make decisions at the partner level. So even though at the time it's changed over the years, but even though at the time Paul and I always own more of the business than the managing partner, that we would use a consensus model between us in order to keep them from being in this weird situation where they were an owner, but the two of us could always outvote them. Mm -hmm. um, so that was in hindsight, a very good move. And then also that we early on in that vision work in the work to implement the vision, we decided that we would run the whole organization. Uh, so the whole community of businesses would be run by consensus of all of the managing partners, including me and Paul. And, and so that everybody not only was charged with running their own business, but that they had a share a say in a uh, part of the conversation, an equal part of the conversation about how to run the organization. So that 
I, I think really radically in hindsight altered the way we work and people's level of engagement. You know, when Bo wrote that article and then uh, was approached to write the book and, and you, you were featured that obviously uh, the book for me was the inspiration behind working with Bo to start the Small Giants community. And, and uh, what we started to do then and hopefully we're doing now is trying to impact other leaders in the way that they do business, what other, whatever industry that they're in and to run them with, with right. purpose and, and values. And you certainly have been a great example of doing that. And selfishly, the reason I started the community was because I wanted to meet people like you that felt the way I did about business that I could learn and grow from. And, uh, and that's really how the, the community was formed. And you, you haven't stopped. If, if anything, you've accelerated in your, uh, ability to share best practices through your books, through trainings, Zing Train, through the mm -hmm. pamphlets that you write and your perspectives on life. Uh, and so you just continue to make great contributions beyond the uh, the wonderful corned beef sandwiches at the deli. So I, I, I want to take you back a little bit yeah. to, you know, where, where'd you grow up? Tell me about your folks. You know, where did some of these sensibilities uh, around curiosity and leadership come from? We could dip the cup in a different part of the ocean now. Yeah. Um, well, no one knows where they came from because uh, I'm a history major and it's all, all, I love history, but it's all kind of made up by which stories we tell and whatever. But uh, I grew up in Chicago, came to Ann Arbor to go to U of M, University of Michigan, for those who don't live here, not the other U of M on the other side of the Great Lakes. Uh, studied Russian history, uh, particularly studied the anarchists, uh, the Michigan, University of Michigan has the largest anarchist collection in the country on the seventh and now also eighth floor of the graduate library. After graduating with my history degree, there is, of course, nothing one can do with a history degree, which was not shocking. I was supposed to go back and get more degrees somehow. Uh, but there isn't really any particular job you can get because you have a BA in history. Uh, and so, although visioning clearly is an enormous piece of how we work now, uh, at the time, I had no vision at all. It's, I had only what uh, now I would refer to in the context of the writer David White, W-H-Y-T-E, whose books I really love. Uh, he calls it the Via Negativa. And that's where you're mm -hmm. clueless about where you would like to go, but you're super clear on where you don't want to go. And uh, I knew I didn't want to go home. I like Chicago and my family's a fine, but I didn't really, I, I guess in hindsight, I, I had an intuitive sense uh, uh, and the list of natural laws, the fourth one on there is that people do their best work when they're part of a great organization. And that's literally true of a business, but it's also true of who you hang out with. It's true of the geography and the, the culture of the place that you're in. And I just didn't want to go back there and get stuck in the life that I had kept repeatedly with my friends complained about. I'm like, I'm not going back in there. So I just decided I would stay in Ann Arbor and I, I really loved the town now at the time. I just kind of liked it and I didn't know where else to go. Uh, one of my roommates was waiting tables in a restaurant in downtown Ann Arbor. Uh, for those who don't know Ann Arbor, it's only about 100,000 people. So I'm at Singerman's Roadhouse right now, which is on the west side, on the edge, western edge of town. And I live on the eastern edge and it's about 12 minutes to get from one end to the other. But anyway, so downtown would be halfway in between but uh, I went in there looking for a job as a waiter which is the job my roommate had uh, they interviewed me and said they'd, they'd, uh, they'd call me if some open and I waited a few weeks I 
went back and I was like, Hey, you know, maybe I could bust tables and then I could work my way up. They said, sounds good. We'll call you. If some opens, I waited two more weeks. They still hadn't called me. Uh, I was running out of money. So I went back and offered to do anything. And, uh, I now know, by the way, this is called emotional resilience. And, uh, uh, they offered me a job washing dishes, never having worked in food. I didn't know you weren't really supposed to want to wash dishes. So I just said, sure. Sounds good. And they had me start that night and that's how I got going. So Paul, uh, Saginaw was the general manager at that restaurant when I started washing dishes. Frank Carollo, who's one of the partners in our bakery, was a line cook. And Maggie Bayless from Zing Train, which you mentioned a couple times, uh, started not long after as a cocktail waitress. So so that's how I got going. So, I, I mean, I would love to tell you that from the time I was like eight that I love food and cooking. My mother was this amazing cook. Everything we do is inspired by my mother and her teaching. And I always knew I wanted my own restaurant, but none of that at all was true. My mother was a good person, but not a good cook. And no one in my family was in business. So it never even dawned on me that there was an option to go into business. Like it just, you know, it just never dawned on me. Uh, and I really just got lucky. I mean, I stumbled into work that I love and I, I love food and cooking. I came to love the food business. Uh, and then also obviously to great people. So Paul, Frank and Maggie and I have all known each other for more than twice as long as a lot of our new employees have been alive, uh, which I think is an awesome thing to happen. And I actually tell them that in the new staff orientation I teach, uh, which I wrote about in part four. But I, you know, I want them to, I, I hope for them that there's three people or two people or five people that they're working with here in our community businesses today that 40 years from now they're still close with and connected to. So, so that's how I got going in food. And then uh, I started prepping and line cooking. If anybody's listening or your partners in LA, uh, I'm all back of the house in my background. Uh, I started managing kitchens. Paul uh, left about halfway through that and opened a little fish market here in town called Monahan's, which is actually still one of the best in the country. By the fall of 81, I kind of reached a point where, uh, I don't know, it was less and less inspiring for me. I, I, I actually wrote a piece for the E-News, which will be out by the time this comes out, uh, about good work, which is something I wrote about in part two of the book. And really good work is vocation, right? And kind of look at it like there's a continuum. Bad work, which is better than no work, but not much. Uh, good jobs, which are pleasant, pay you okay, people are polite. But I really want to create good work for people, which is where they're impassioned and where they're, they feel honored for who they are and that they're, you know, it's all what you talk about, purpose and contribution to something greater than yourself and, and all that. And I, in hindsight, I had a good job, but it wasn't good work. And so I decided I would give two months notice, November 181. I really didn't know what was going to be next, but it was just time to get out of there. And Paul, not knowing I'd given notice, called me to see if I wanted to come look at this building near the fish market, because over the years together, we had talked about doing a little deli since he had grown up in Detroit, where you could get good deli food. And in Chicago, you could get it and you couldn't get it here. And then, uh, like I said earlier, like whatever it was, four and a half months later, we opened. And 39 and a half years later, we're overnight success. We may have uh, talked about this over the years, but uh, I was also a history major. That, yeah, uh, I think you know, now that you say yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. Couldn't do anything with. And I also waited tables and, and bus tables early on. Um, and uh, But I did say one day I want to get in the restaurant business, but I want to do it later in life when it's, you know, it's not going to make or break my career. So I, yeah. I where waited. You're not, uh, where you're not dependent on it. Yeah, for your I was almost uh, 60 years old when I 
uh, finally got got into the business. And, what, what's and your they, restaurant uh, that you invested in? It's a it's called the Wine Gallery in Laguna Beach, and it's a uh, it's uh, was started before me. So my partner started it six years prior to that, and had another one for seventeen years. Oh and, wow! Uh, yeah. Just a not great independent casual place out there. But you know, it's tough business, as you know, and. Yes, it is. Um, and, you know, what I'm what I'm thinking about is that, you know, kind of pushing you again back to the earlier days. Um, yeah. I know you didn't want to go back to Chicago. I know you kind of fell into all this just uh, and, and then built from there. But these sensibilities that you have around relationships that you've been able to build, influence on people that you've been able to have, leadership traits that you formed. Were there any early experiences as a kid, you know, uh, with your folks, early jobs or anything that might have contributed no matter what industry you ended up in? Well, I mean, I think, look, everything, I, I would say everything contributes to everything is one thing I've learned. And so there's no question. I mean, growing up influenced me, influence you. Uh, and sometimes we know we're being influenced. And sometimes like historians, we go back and decide this is where we were influenced. So yeah, I mean, I clearly grew up with a belief that learning, well, I wrote a whole book about beliefs. So I, I clearly grew up with a belief that learning was super important. Uh, I clearly grew up with a belief that books were important. And then if you add that to the fact that I'm a shy introvert, and then anything you do a lot of, you start getting better at, and we all like doing things we're good at. So I started reading a lot early on in my life, you know, so that's all that's all a big piece of it. Uh, I actually grew up in a pretty religious family uh, with a Jewish day school upbringing till eighth grade. So I, and not with all due respect to others, including my family, <laughs> I kind of had an overdose. Uh, yeah. So, uh, but I don't begrudge what others do as long as it's meaningful for them. It's, it's awesome. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, and then who knows, man, add it all in there. I grew up as a little kid in the 60s, probably same as you, roughly. And it's all in there, man. Civil yeah, rights movement, yeah. Kennedy's assassination. Uh, but I grew up on Kraft macaroni and cheese and fish sticks and all that. So, like I said, I mean, everybody in my family were teachers, doctors, lawyers, dentists. So I was kind of the failure of the family for not getting that advanced degree. And, you know, just to show you the, the, the difficulty of social pressure and how hard it is uh, to not try to conform every year. So we opened the Delhi 82, like every summer, my mother would say like, you know, why don't you take the LSAT this year and, <laughs> you know, maybe just see how it's going. And, you know, I just feel so bad because you're wasting your education. And, you know, in hindsight, I have more empathy that they spent four years of out-of-state tuition and I got a job as a dishwasher. <laughs> but <laughs> but anyway, by that point, we'd already been in business. I mean, it was 10 years down the road in the deli and we had, I don't know, 150 employees and, you know, we were probably doing 5 million in sales or whatever. We'd been in Bon Appetit and New York Times and my mother was still trying to get me to go to law school. <laughs> and I, I, I remember finally going like, Mom, we have 150 employees. I am not going to law school <laughs> but just to asking. show you how family patterns can persist it, it was uh there it was well i had uh you know similar pressures but uh i was always going to be a doctor till i got a d in chemistry and a c yeah. in calculus well I'm and then you, uh um and but i did end up going to law school um but it only lasted as a lawyer for a year and a half before 
uh, again, circumstances came my way and I jumped into business with my brother. So, you know, similarly, you just, you, you, uh, like you said, you, you put your head down, you work hard, good things happen. You take opportunity that comes to you. And you certainly have done that, um, with the community of businesses and just the overall thought leadership. Uh, you know, uh, can, uh, as, a in all these years, you've obviously had been through a lot, um, and, and maybe the pandemic is one of the hardest ones. But you wrote a a pamphlet recently about humility, mm-hmm. and yeah, uh, and I'd love to just hear in the research that you did for that. What did you learn, and 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 maybe you know reflect on a humbling decision that you had to make a, as a leader recently? Well, I I, I learned a lot. Uh, the story of that is that I, I don't even remember the chronology now. It's maybe three years ago in the spring. Uh, I got asked to speak at a symposium on campus on humility. And uh, my reaction, honest reaction was like, I don't know a damn thing about humility. <laughs> and like, I don't even know what I would say. I've never talked about it. I've barely thought about it. I you know, but the woman who was running the symposium used to work for us and she's awesome, wonderful, kind human being. And her husband still works for us as a manager at the deli. And I'd say the same about him. And I didn't have the heart to say no. So I said yes. And then I had like four months to figure out what I was going to say. So, of course, you know, the only thing you and I as history majors really know how to do well is study. And then I just started reading about humility and then trying to figure it out. Uh, but like everything that I study almost everything other than chemistry, which I I didn't flunk. I just fell asleep the first day. I mean, every day for the first week and then I dropped the class. But anyway, pretty much everything I really study by choice and get into, it's a a lifetime study, right? And so humility turned into that and that's where the pamphlet came from. But there's a lot of things I learned. in no particular order. I, I learned it's an essential ingredient to creating a healthy ecosystem. So this idea of good work that I referenced before, I, it's only going to happen in a place where leaders have humility. Humility, in hindsight, it's not just thinking that we're not great. It's also, it's also, so it's not like that we're avoiding being too full of ourselves, but I also was surprised to realize it's it's also important not to think really ill of ourselves. So I don't know if I said that very clearly, but most of our, certainly my focus on humility is like, well, if people think they're so awesomely great and they're really stuck up and self-centered, then that's not humble. But it actually turns out it's equally not humble if somebody's like, I'm a loser, I'm terrible. So really what humility is, is the acceptance that we're all uh, we're not all, none of us are the same, but we're all really on par. And that was interesting for me because it fit with all the anarchist stuff that I work on, which is the belief that everybody's a creative, intelligent human being. And, and so it happened to be a timely subject because I, like in the last year, just looking at what's been going on without really getting into politics, but like racism can't coexist with humility because it's based on the belief that somebody's better than somebody else, right? Anti-Semitism can't exist if you, if you start from humility, it's impossible. And, and then also like just completely overtly making judgments. Uh, you know, if you, if you base everything from humility, then you start by acknowledging quickly what you don't know and then getting help, right? So the whole small giants, model and what you said that a lot of what drove you to start this the small giants community 
comes from humility. Like, man, there's a lot I don't know. And there's a lot of people who know more than I do about a lot of stuff. And this would be really cool if I could go learn from them. And so it's, it's embedded in all of the social issues that we're dealing with right now have humility either absent and it would have helped or uh, it's present in some other way. And the same is true in organizations. And I happen to have read uh, Patrick Lencioni's book, uh, Ideal Team Player, and he uh, focuses on three main characteristics, humble, hungry, which is what it sounds like, and smart, which doesn't mean intelligent, but basically social intelligence. So the ability to work collaboratively. And and so there it was again, like, and he's like, you got to have these three things and the humility is the hardest one. Uh, to go without if you had to go with two of the, mm-hmm. you know if you only had one that's the one you want to have and and when I reflected back on all of my years of working I was like yeah you know what you're right all the people like Maggie Frank you know whatever that I like working with Paul they're all humble hungry and smart and and so that made sense and then I started to understand that even though we had never really talked about humility at Zingerman's at all in hindsight, it's embedded in a ton of practices and beliefs and systems and approaches that we have, like servant leadership, which I just taught a thing on today, is all about humility. Uh, we teach energy management. It's all about humility because you're understanding that your energy is going to impact the people around you. And that's all learned from Anish Kavanaugh, who you know, who's spoken at the Small Giants uh, Community Conference many times. Anarchism is all about, if it's done well, all about humility. Uh, the bottom line change process that we teach is all is a change process that requires us to get input from others because none of us can figure it out alone. You know, so it's 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 all through all of that. And uh, so it, it really was eye opening. And then to start to look at something like I, if you would have asked me before this, can you teach humility? I would have always said no. It's like, I don't know, you're like born humble or you're not. Right. But it really comes down to childhood beliefs again. And so like insecurity manifests as egotistical a lot uh, for all of us. And we all have ego and we all want praise and recognition too. So we're all, we're all struggling with it. And I guess out of that, I, I started to reframe and I wrote about this in the pamphlet, but like I had always looked at humility as like this state, like you're you either in it, you either have it or you don't. But I, I started to look at it more like mindfulness and started to I've started to use the word humbleness, mm-hmm. which actually turns out is a word, but no one ever that oh, I really right. ever uses it. So because in mindfulness, like no one's perfectly mindful all the time. Like we're all slipping and sliding. We just try to be more mindful and in the state of mindfulness more of the time. Right. right. But but none of us get it all the time, no matter how much you meditate or journal or whatever. Yeah, we go we go in and yeah, out. of. We go in and out. And so it's the same with 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 humility. And when I started to use the word humbleness, <clears throat> excuse me, then I started to realize, like, yeah, we're all kind of pulled by our ego. We're all pulled by the feeling that we're worthless, which we all have. Right. And trying to stay in the middle is really where we want to be. So out of that, a lot of good learning came. And now been trying to slowly teach it and embed it within the organization and then the pamphlet hopefully is helping other people yeah we'll uh, we'll offer a link to it and uh uh like you said it's it's always been there and uh you just didn't really talk about it or frame it in this way and uh uh so yeah we'll we'll all look forward to to reading that Ari, if, if uh, you had to give ad- advice to you know somebody maybe kind of younger in the entrepreneurial journey what what would you focus on? What kind of advice would you give somebody who's just starting out? 
Well, I don't know. I mean, I guess it would be up to them to ask, but I, I mean, the, and, and not being flipped, but I mean, the books are essentially, and there's four in the series plus the other pamphlets that aren't in there, but is, are really my attempt to be able to communicate what I've learned from screwing up as well as learned from a lot of other great people like Bo, like Peter Block, like Peter Kestenbaum, like whatever, Meg Wheatley, Anise Kavanaugh. I mean, all these people that we've learned from, Emma Goldman, uh, who have been influences on me. And so all, all of that's in there. And I, I think everybody, like we all need to hear different things at different times. So like, I wish I, that we had written out a vision when we opened. I wish I knew about servant leadership when we opened. I wish I knew about energy management when we opened. Uh, I, I mean, and then part three of the book is on self-management and uh, it's it's a lot of what I screwed up and then learned from over the years. And when it came out, people are like, well, shouldn't you have written this one first? And like, well, yeah, but I didn't. And they're like, well, doesn't everybody who's going to go into business need to know this before they go into business? I'm like, yeah, but no, hardly any of us are interested in learning it until we've been in business and are going crazy, screwing stuff up. And then this is what we realize we need to know. So, I, I mean, I, I think really we're all in different places. And, and I mean, they're, they're not small books. So there's a lot. It's, it's not the one-minute manager with all due respect. So it's, but they're written in separate essays so that people can read. Like I just wrote about mission statements. And if they were open and they want to have a mission statement, which I, started, I, I have long said is a huge, important, hugely important piece of what we do. And I realized when I was writing about it for the E! News the other day, it's actually... A pretty radical act the way that we do it they could just read that essay so I, I think all of them are impactful and one of the things so we you asked about the community of businesses but we just rolled out our or not but and we just rolled out our 2032 vision so it just happened that we were supposed to roll it out formally even though everybody here had seen drafts but roll it out formally like the end of march last year which got a little derailed by the pandemic uh but it, we still have it and one of the sections in there talks about starting to teach our material from zinc train to younger people so i don't know exactly how we're going to do it but teaching visioning to 10 year olds and teaching energy management to eight-year-olds because these are life skills that yeah. i wish i would have known as a kid if i would have known that beliefs were not genetic and that most of what i was getting told were just other people's beliefs that i could decide to run with or change i mean it's so freeing man <laughs> yeah I think, the last, uh, therapy. I think the, the last vision I saw was the 2020 vision. So yeah, so your guys are on. Yeah, so this is, a, this is this is 2032. I'll send you the 98% done version because I'm sure there's still some words to tweak or whatever. But Yeah, that, that's awesome. Um, well, just incredible. So so nice to catch up with you, Ari. I want to I want to end with these five quick hit questions that I ask okay. everybody, kind of like the association game. I think they'll be very easy. What's, what's my favorite sandwich? No, <laughs> uh, no, I don't have that there. Um, uh, but uh, name a leader you look up to. I know the list is long. The list is long uh, because without deflecting the question, I try to learn from everybody and I, I, tr I try to, I believe everybody can lead and it's our job is to help everybody lead. So uh, right now, I'm looking at Zach Milner, who's an assistant manager at the Roadhouse, who's only been a manager for two months, but he's been working here five, six years, started as a busboy, and uh, I learned a lot from working with him, and he's awesome. There you go. Uh, how about a book that influenced your leadership style? Well, again, there's a gazillion, maybe two gazillion. Uh, 
Peter Block's books, uh, Empowered Manager and Stewardship, Come Quickly to Mind, Robert Greenleaf's Servant Leadership, uh, Emma Goldman's book, Anarchism and Other Essays. there's a million. David White, uh, certainly Bo's work has been huge. Great Game of Business is where I learned about open book management, yeah, which we've yeah. been doing. For All right, you can't years. give me the whole. You can't give me the whole list. Oh no, that's like the that's like the top five. Give me one favorite movie. Well, interestingly, I gave up going to movies after we opened the Roadhouse 17 years ago because I started working every night. But um, Favorite movie, uh, one that I loved that no one will ever have heard of is probably, I don't, I don't know how to get on Netflix, but everybody else will. Time of the Gypsies uh, it was just kind of weird. I have an interesting fascination with the Roma people. And uh, it was about gypsies in a sort of strange <laughs> movie. <laughs> oh, wow. All right. Uh, well, so if you don't watch Netflix, do you have uh, otherwise a, a TV series you like to binge watch? Uh, well, I know uh, the last TV series I watched was it's probably so long ago. It's like Homeland and, and the Sopranos and stuff. But we I was watching less and less TV. And then uh, so my I had a Corgi named Jellybean for 17 years and she passed away five and a half years ago. And then Tammy got me, uh, got us a new corgi puppy for my birthday, who we named Bean Sprout from Jelly Bean. And uh, <laughs> anyway, but Sprout is awesome, but she freaks out when the TV's on, and so that was the end of our like last twenty minutes of TV a day. And so, oh then, my gosh! That's and then when funny. the pandemic came and my pay went down a lot, I was like, you know, I'm just going to get rid of the cable because we don't even watch it. Why am I paying for it? So, uh, so yeah, can't say Sopranos, Homeland. Yeah. Yeah, those are well. Hey, those are classics. Yeah, Lastly, man. last one. What's uh, something about you that many people don't know? Uh, well, I'm pretty open book by this point since I keep yeah. writing all these, whatever the word is, revealing uh, self stories. But I, I mean, I, I think on this podcast, people may not know about the anarchism. People don't believe that I'm an introvert because uh, I speak a lot in public now, but. They don't understand that you can learn to speak, but still not like I'd rather wash dishes than go to a party. And I, I actually choose to bust tables or whatever to get out of going to parties. Well, I uh, I remember you uh, doing that when I, when I went to the Roadhouse back then. And yeah. um, I'm a fellow introvert. But you know what? When you're really passionate uh, about who you are and what you have to contribute, um, there's a lot to talk about. And, and oh, you, yeah. con- you know, yeah. you continue to do that. And and I know I appreciate it. I, I want to just reflect a little bit on the things that you said, Ari, and kind of what I took away from this. Um, there'll be lots of links that we'll uh, include in the notes so people can get to some of your stuff. Um, I love it. At the beginning, you talked about, you know, if you want to understand a business, you know, watch it during a crisis. And and uh, and just like you have done, I've been very proud of uh, what businesses in general, small giants in particular, have done during the pandemic to, to weather it and in many cases pivot, thrive. I mean, I think we're gonna in many ways come out uh, better for it. Um, yeah. You know, all healthy organizations have a vision and you guys teach how to do this. There's many different ways to do it, but but putting that down, understanding where you wanna go, how you wanna get there, who you wanna be is just so important. How you and Paul sat down and very simply said, we wanna have great food, great space, great place to work. 
um, made very specific decisions about wanting to stay in Ann Arbor, not franchise. I know that wasn't easy. You went through a period with Paul where uh, you guys didn't necessarily agree on that, but really stuck oh, yeah. to your guns. And um, the business model you you built of, of owner partners taking the passion um, of the people inside, giving them the opportunity uh, to grow has happened, not just with the owners, but employees overall. And, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people that have come through the doors there that have benefited from that. Um, I, I loved it to talk about just early in your life, how, you know, you went to U of M, became, was a history major, uh, but didn't have a plan early on and really fell into it. And and in, in many ways, I feel the same. And I think we should take some pressure off of young people, particularly in school, who, including my daughter, who feel like they already have to know exactly what they're going to do or what their career is going to be. Yeah, and and you know. I just say, you know what, it, it, you don't know. And if you think you know, you don't know. And, and even if you do know, it's going to change. And, and, you know, just put your head down, work hard, and things are going to come to you. And, and that's what happened with you. Uh, like you said, everything contributes to everything. Um, you wrote about uh, beliefs, uh, about learning, about books. Uh, I remember early on, I you know, had never even writ read a business book. And then I dug in and go, oh my gosh, how much I don't know. But you took, you know, this anarchist view that you took that, you know, you looked at even people in your own family and uh, you didn't take that typical path, um, but didn't feel like you needed to conform and and look what happened and, and look what you've done and continue to do. And I love the current work on on humility, which is uh, like, agree, essential for a healthy workplace. Um, also, like you said, important not to use it in a negative way to be down on yourself, uh, because um, we're all we're all equal and it isn't a, a level playing field. And uh, I, I was very touched as well by the social justice movement um, that's happened this year. Uh, and if we could all have a greater sense of humility, then um, then you know I hope we can continue to see some changes in that level of uh, racism and things that are still unfortunately evident in in our country and in our world. And uh, you know, just like you said, the you know your advice to to younger people is is really nothing more than just just learn, just take it in, learn, find people that have experience that you can talk to that can. Uh, share their experiences with you. None of us have the answers. We've just gone ahead and done the best we can. Uh, but you've gone the extra mile to really spread the word and continue to to do that um, in a way that I know uh, I have benefited from personally, Ari, and, and, and many people in life and in business overall. So uh, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you. My pleasure. And uh, I was just going to say for your daughter, like I was in the same spot. And I that's where I wish I had known about visioning because you could write a four year vision for your college uh, career, whatever the word is, that doesn't even say what job you're going to be in. It just says what kind of relationships you're going to form and how you feel about learning and whatever. I mean, so the visioning tool is very powerful in that setting. And it's something that uh, maybe it's the advice. So when Paul uh, Saginaw and I were going to give the commencement address at U of M in 2015, and I had never gone to any of my own commencements because I don't like ceremonies at all. But I went to that one. And uh, as I kept trying to figure out what I wanted to say, I realized like when you're finishing college, like, or whatever, everybody asks you the same question like what are you going to do what are you going to do what are you going to do and then we all don't know and then we make it up or you're like the one in 10 who's like i'm going to go and do a 14-year residency in, in in neurosurgery whatever and 
what I realize is it's really the wrong question because the right, a better question would be what kind of life do you want to create of which your job is one part, but not the only part. And, and so I, I believe from the hot pen work and the visioning, which is basically free writing that everybody knows in their heart, what kind of life they want to create and what the job title says on their business card or exactly which city they live in is not really to your, what you said, not really the main point. And, uh, I think the work that we've done, tried to do imperfectly here is to create a way for people to be themselves and be part of an interesting organization at the same time. Yeah, I totally agree. That's a great way to end it. My takeaway is I'm going to run upstairs and uh, my daughter's home for Thanksgiving and we're going to work on her vision because I think she needs it. Um, that will be very helpful. Well, thank you very much, Ari. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, whatever I can do, let me know. And my email is ariatzingermans.com. You can put that in there. And then the e-news and the archive for the e-news are up on zingermanscommunity.com. All right. Well, and thank you for joining me on this episode of the Growing With Purpose podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please support the show by subscribing to hear future episodes. Until next time. We hope you enjoyed the conversation with Ari and Paul. If you want to hear more from Ari and other top purpose-driven business leaders, register for the 2021 Small Giants Community Summit. Our annual conference for purpose-driven leaders is going virtual this April and will feature Ari as a speaker. Visit smallgiants.org to learn more about the summit and register yourself and your team. That's smallgiants.org and we'll see you online this April.